This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast, my name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here, other half of the podcast. Kyle, what a quick week it's been, my guy. Yes, sir. But um, we got we got some topics to go over, my guy. You ready to go over these? Oh, yeah. Definitely excited. All right. So, obviously, with probably the biggest breaking news uh, that we've seen in the middle of the NFL season so far, uh, Odell Beckham Jr. has landed with a new team. He will be going to the Los Angeles Rams, which with Odell on the roster, it already adds another element to a loaded wide receiver core that has Cooper Cup, Robert Woods, and Van Jefferson already. So we'll dive into just the impact that Odell brings to the Rams moving forward. After that, we'll talk about Cam Newton signing with the Carolina Panthers. He does return back to the team that drafted him back in 2010. And we're going to talk about if he's the starting quarterback moving forward, you know, can he try to salvage the season that the Carolina Panthers are currently having? And then we're going to dive into our featured NFL games of week 10. So we'll be going over the Seahawks and the Packers game. It's going to be a pretty electric matchup with Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers, both back for their respective teams. Uh, That'll be the first game that we go over. After that, we're going to talk about the Kansas City Chiefs and the Las Vegas Raiders. It's a huge AFC West divisional game with number one seeding in that division at play at this current moment in time with that matchup. And then the last game that we'll talk about will be the Cleveland Browns going up against the New England Patriots. Uh, both teams are above 500. They're both in a dogfight in their respective chases to get to the top of their divisions with the Browns being in the AFC North and the Patriots being the AFC East. So that'll definitely be a fun topic of discussion. And then we're going to transition into some NBA talk, uh, NBA topics. Uh, We're going to focus on the Golden State Warriors and just the amazing hot start that they've had. They are the number one team in the NBA. They only have one loss on the season. And we'll just talk about who we think the X factor for the Warriors is going to be this year that could potentially propel them to a championship season. And then we're going to end the episode with Damian Lillard and some of the criticisms that he's had about the NBA officiating so far in this season. But that is the rundown for the episode today. Like I said at the top, we're going to dive into Odell Beckham Jr. signing with the Los Angeles Rams in a huge seismic move in the middle of the season. Odell adds another element to a loaded wide receiver core that includes Cooper Cup, Robert Woods, and Van Jefferson. And I would imagine that his addition to the LA Rams shoots them to the top of possibly getting to the Super Bowl this upcoming season or for the upcoming playoffs, excuse me. So Kevin, to pose the question to you, with Odell signing with the Los Angeles Rams, does this guarantee a Super Bowl trip for the Los Angeles Rams this season? Absolutely not. Uh, my main reason for it is because look at what happened when he went to Cleveland. 
I mean, they thought they were going to be immediate playoff contenders. They thought AFC Championship. Shit, some people said Super Bowl. Granted, there were a lot of injuries that were kind of going on in Cleveland at the time between obviously his injury, uh, obviously tearing his ACL last year. Uh, Jarvis has been in and out of the lineup, and Joku's been hurt. Uh, Nick Chubb's been banged up here and there. So, I mean, it's not the same as it is the Rams, but I don't believe that any individual player outside of a quarterback would really go out there and make you an immediate Super Bowl contender. Now, granted, the Rams have gone out and they have made a lot of moves over the last couple of seasons in terms of player personnel. They went out and they acquired Von Miller recently. Obviously, they went out and got Jalen Ramsey. They went out there and they got, um, oh my God, who's Dante Fowler a few years back in a trade from the Falcons. So, I mean, you name it, it's been done, but they haven't really amounted to anything. Now this is the first season that Matthew Stafford is here. So the offense has been absolutely on fire this last couple of weeks. Other than last week having the, how do I word this? Um, Where they shit the bed against the Tennessee Titans. They just could not get anything going. Uh, I think that he adds a different dynamic, but I will say that it is an upgrade when you think about it from this point of view. They waved to Sean Jackson. And they got OBJ. Immediate upgrade. Younger, maybe not faster. Justin Tucker just missed a field goal. Just saying, for those of you that are wondering what's going on in this game, wow, he hasn't missed a field goal under 50 in, a, in, wow, in a long time. So um, Odell Beckham brings uh, great catching capabilities, route running. Obviously, he's still got some speed. He gives you the dynamic to kind of expand your playbook in terms of some trick plays. We've seen him do some end arounds, some wide receiver screens, and some wide receiver sweeps. But... Again, that all depends on what Matthew Stafford's going to be able to do. He had a bad game last week. Every quarterback does. But it's kind of similar to the Cleveland situation because there are a lot of mouths to feed. Cooper Cup leads the league in receiving yards, and that's obviously Matthew Stafford's favorite target. Robert Woods has games where he's getting 9 to to 12 targets a game. Obviously, Van Jefferson's a big deep threat guy for Matthew Stafford. And then you have Tyler Higbee in between the hashes. And sometimes the checkdowns in the back, out of the backfield. So I don't necessarily think that he makes them a favorite. He makes them a better team, 100%. Any roster that he's on, he immediately makes them better. But to, to, to say that they're a Super Bowl favorite would be a stretch. No, I completely agree with you, and here's why. So when it comes to Odell, he's still a huge dynamic playmaker at the wide receiver spot. But the thing that I'm going to be focused on with Odell for the rest of the season is can he adjust from a player where it seems like the media is always focused around him. Like he's always a figurehead for attention and can he make the sacrifices to be able to get this team to possibly getting to a Super Bowl this year. So what I mean by that is, is it's like you mentioned Cooper cup is clearly the number one target for Matthew Stafford. Robert Woods is probably second. You know, when you think of the amount of targets both Cooper Cup and Robert Woods receive, you know, Cooper's getting probably close to 10 to 15 targets a game. You know, when you look at Robert Woods, he's probably getting somewhere in between about 6 to 10, you know, 10 being a stretch. And then you got Van Jefferson on top of that, who on occasion may get 5 to 7 targets. So Odell's going to have to be comfortable with getting a decreased number of targets targets compared to being the number one wide receiver that he was when he was playing with the Giants a couple years ago so that'll be a point of emphasis for me moving forward when it goes to him and another thing is is can he stay healthy granted we're halfway through the season but 
Odell does have a checkered history when it comes to dealing with injuries. You know, he left New York after sustaining a pretty nasty injury before he ended up going to Cleveland. And then we saw last year where he missed time once again. He missed half of the season. He only played seven games last year with the Browns. And even this season, he missed time. So I think health is going to be a factor with Odell moving forward. And when you combine all those factors together, it definitely guarantees that they are a Super Bowl contender. I think that kind of just goes without saying. They're, they've been a Super Bowl contender without him to begin with. Now, adding him into that mix, I think it largely stays the same. I wouldn't say that this shoots them to the top of the NFC because I still have the Cardinals above them. The Bucks are right next to them. The Packers and the Cowboys, they're, all of those teams are in the mix. But really, the Cardinals are the team this year that have been the better team out of the entire conference. So does this move push them past the Cardinals? Potentially. So obviously, these two teams will play again later in the season, like all divisional teams do. And that'll be the game I'm going to be kind of paying attention to the most. It's going to be that Cardinals-Rams game when they match up for the second time this season. Because if the Rams can beat the Cardinals, I think they have a much better shot to compete for a Super Bowl this year than without Odell. That is, that's if they win. So I still think it's a great move for LA. It definitely keeps them at the top of the Super Bowl odds as far as I'm concerned. But to me, I think it's a stretch to say that it guarantees a Super Bowl appearance for the Rams at this current moment in time. It's it's tough because if you would have told me that Odell Beckham would be put into one of the most powerful offensive schemes in the NFL a few years ago, I'd have been like, oh, my God, like that team has to go to the Super Bowl. But between him going to Cleveland, it's 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 similar to the Randy Moss situation that he actually brought up himself uh, just last week mm -hmm. uh, or earlier this week where he said that he was in kind of a similar situation in which he started off hot in Minnesota. He went to Oakland for the bag. Obviously, it's different for um, Odell because Odell was traded. But he went to another team in which everybody thought that he was going to make a big difference and kind of pick that team back up. And then he just did not perform very well. And then obviously Odell didn't perform very well. So now it's like, I think that this is going to be Odell's opportunity and last shot at redemption. If he goes to a high-powered offense like this, he does not contribute and he does not make a difference. I think that this is going to be it for him in terms of contending for a winning team. Sure, a team will go out there and throw some money at him. And sure, a team will sign him to a two- or three-year deal so that he can go out there and you know still gain that statistic. Or to be that, that statistical deep threat or that statistical uh, game-changing wide receiver. But if he shits the bed for this final eight games of the year and like he doesn't really contribute to the success of the offense, if you can't do it with one of the league's best quarterbacks, what what are you good for? In my opinion, like seriously, like what where are you gonna go to really make a difference? They already said it in Tampa, which is why they didn't get him. They already have a stacked wide receiver room. But so does LA. Mm -hmm. They have Tom Brady. LA's got Matt Stafford. Like, are they really that different? I don't necessarily think so outside of Stafford being younger than Brady and the Rams having a better defense. But, dude, Odell's this to me, this is really his last shot. Shut your mouth. No more daddy getting involved. Go out there and play. 
for a contender. He's still going to be in the league. He's not a bust. He doesn't suck. But I just think this is his last shot to win. See, I think the Randy Moss comparison is a little bit different. I understand the nature of what Randy was trying to say there. But with Odell, here's the thing about him. The guy has amazing skills. I don't think anybody can dispute that. It's just, can he exercise it on the field? And, you know, compared to Randy, Randy had a hot start to his career in Minnesota and then really tailed off in that Oakland period where he played, I think, two seasons with the Raiders. And a lot of people were thinking that he was washed up, that, you know, Randy wasn't going to be that guy anymore when he went to New England. And a lot of people at that time were saying that New England was taking a big risk bringing in a guy like that. And just the chemistry that he was able to establish with Tom Brady for that 2007 season, I don't think anybody was expecting the fact that he would go on to break the the single-season touchdown record that season with Tom. Now with Odell, Odell's coming in in the middle of the season. It's a little bit different than the situation that Tom and Randy had because both those guys had an off-season together where they could knock down the chemistry, where they could really get it going in that regard. With Stafford, this is middle of the season. He's already got a number one wide receiver in Cooper Cup to throw to. And Robert Woods is no scrub at the wide receiver position either. So Odell's going to have to get comfortable with not being the number one target. It's probably going to be Cooper Cup. I mean, at best, I think Odell might slide into that number two spot for the wide receivers. But there's a very good chance that he might be like the number three target four wide receivers on that team behind Cooper Cup and Robert Woods. And as long as he's comfortable with that, and as long as the team is winning, I think he'll be fine. It's just that, can he accept that? Can he take that self-sacrifice and say, you know what? I'm going to do what the best I can for this team. I don't care if I go out there and only get like three or four catches the game for like 40, 50 yards. But as long as I'm contributing to my team getting a win, by any means necessary. And if he's got to be able to accept that, then I think the Rams will be fine. But if he starts bringing drama into the equation, saying he's not getting enough targets, or that Matt Stafford is not throwing him the ball too often, I'm just saying that that drama can arise. And I don't think that's something that LA is going to look forward, you know, long-term with. So Odell's in a good position right now. This is by far the the best competing team that he's ever been on. So, you know, the cards are really, the odds are in his favor right now, but he's got to go out there and be able to make the plays that he can make. He, but he cannot go out there and demand that he be the number one guy for that team. When clearly that is not the case. Cooper cup has been by far the most electric receiver for that wide receiver core the entire year. And I think Odell, best case scenario, he finds himself as the number two option on that team. But he could kind of fit into that number three spot behind Robert Woods just because the chemistry between him and Matt Stafford, it's just not there yet. And he doesn't have a full understanding of the playbook yet. He doesn't know all the calls yet. And I imagine he's going to be you know, somewhat limited when he gets his first start with the LA Rams, whether it's this week or next week. So we just don't know whether or not he's going to play this weekend. But I think it's going to be exciting if he hits the field for Monday Night Football against the 49ers, though. I would definitely watch that. Yeah. Odell's known for two things. It's time for him to pick which one. 
superstar that made that catch against the Dallas Cowboys in, I believe, his first or second year? Rookie. He was a rookie. Or are you going to be known for the guy that's gone from locker room to locker room creating on the field and off the field antics? Time to make a choice, Odell. I think this is one of those situations where, you know, he, he's got to accept the fact that he's not the number one guy on this team. And if he does, if he just goes with the mindset of, I'm going to do whatever I can to help this team win, that's fine. But he's got to be comfortable with the fact that he may only get three or four targets a game. You know, there may be some games where, you know, the defense is focused on Cooper more. You know, he could get an increase in targets as the season goes on. But, yeah, he can't be getting mad about only getting four or five targets a game at the first couple games that he plays in. So, you know, as as the season goes along, you know, he'll definitely get an increase in targets. I'm I'm not saying that he's going to, like, just stay at, like, three or four, five targets a game. But it's like he's got to be comfortable with that. And if he does that, really the sky is the limit with that, with that offense when you add Odell into the mix. So hopefully it works out for them. But could be a situation where it's like oil mixing with water. And hopefully for the Rams' sake, that doesn't happen for them. But Odell has been known to stir up some controversy and stir up some drama wherever, wherever he's been, whether it's been with New York or with Cleveland. So time will just tell on that front. Yeah, but, not wrong. But... With that said, we are going to transition into our next segment, which will be Cam Newton signing with the Carolina Panthers. So Carolina made a move after Sam Darnold had a incomplete fracture. I think that's the actual terminology that they used. I mean, hell, he can't even complete a fracture to go along with completing passes. But that's another that's another story for another day. But how long have you been waiting to use that? Honestly, I just kind of came up with that on the fly. That's <laughs> good. <laughs> but it's a move that they had to make. They had to fill in the quarterback spot with Sam being out for potentially the next couple games or so, but they do bring back an old face and Cam Newton. They signed him to a one-year deal. I think it was upwards of like damn near like $10 million. I know he's guaranteed about $4.5 with some incentives thrown in there. So pretty sizable contract for a guy that's only going to play potentially eight, nine games. So Kevin, I'm going to post a question to you. If Cam Newton is the starting quarterback moving forward for the Carolina Panthers, can he salvage this season for them? No. Clear, cut, and concise. Next segment. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I, I really don't believe that it's possible. I mean, Carolina has a lot of issues, and especially in the injury category. And some of their play calling has been in question, too. Matt Rule came into this system as a brilliant collegiate offensive mind, obviously coming from the system he had at Baylor. Um, and he's had a kind of a rotating door of quarterbacks since he's gotten there. I mean, we obviously started with Teddy Bridgewater. He had freaking PJ Walker last year. Now he's at Sam Darnold and now he's looking at freaking Cam Newton. So it's like, I feel like he can't get it right. And I don't necessarily know if that's the ineptitude of the quarterback skill that he's had at his disposal, or if it's just the play calling. And again, you know, your best player has been hurt the last two years in Christian McCaffrey. So, you know, that offense is just not fully healthy and it hasn't been healthy in quite some time. I believe DJ Moore was hurt last week in a game. I don't know if he came back to the game. I don't know if he's going to be out, but I did see that he got knocked out of the game for quite some time with a with a, what looked to be a rib injury. He crossed the middle of the field and looked like he got popped pretty hard. But what the point I'm trying to make is Cam Newton didn't look good in New England. Cam had flashes. Cam had some sparks in which they were like, damn, is, is MVP Cam back? 
And I need to bury that narrative right now. That will never come back again. Cam Newton's in his 30s. Cam Newton's arm strength is not the same. The accuracy isn't there. And uh, granted, he is in his 30s, like I said. So the speed, of course, is just going to continue to go down in terms of his ability to be able to do that consistently. And Cam's been injury-ridden his entire career. So do you really want him to be moving and having those quarterback draws and those scrambles that are going to potentially hurt the guy you just gave $10 million for for nine games? I think that that was an absolute stupid signing. You could have for, for that, you could have gone out and signed somebody else or went and made a trade for somebody else or let P.J. Walker run the team. Cam Newton sets you back, in my, in my uh, opinion, because he can't hit the deep ball anymore. His first instinct will always be to run. And he's injury-prone. So you sign a 30-year-old, injury-prone, noodle-armed quarterback for $10 million. I understand 4.5 is only guaranteed. But if I remember correctly, we're talking about a million and some change as long as he is on the active roster every week to accumulate what could be up to $10 million. I know starting quarterbacks that don't make that salary in two seasons. And you're going to give that to a 30-year-old washed-up MVP. I'm sorry, Carolina's front office. I get it. You're trying to make up for the, the way that the situation had ended a couple of years back when he was cut. But to me, the signing just shows desperation. And it's just the wrong time, wrong place to go out there and ask for forgiveness. I mean, I'm not going to say it's all doom and gloom like the way that you portray it. But as far as can he salvage the season if he's a starting quarterback moving forward, I just don't see it. But I will say this in defensive camp. Cam Newton last year had to deal with throwing to these wide receivers. Keel Harry. Go. Demir Bird. Jacoby Myers, who's no scrub. And Julian Edelman, who was on his last leg. And the two tight ends he had to throw to were Dalton Keene and Devin Aziazi. That's who we had to throw to last year. And that's why New England as a whole struggled mightily in the passing game. Granted, he did have some accuracy issues to go along with that. And I don't think that his shoulder was necessarily right, you know, throughout that season, but he got through the season relatively healthy and coming into this season, I thought that there would have been a chance that he was going to be the starting quarterback for the Patriots. Patriots went with Mac Jones and that meant that Cam got cut. So I do think that Cam does have a better overall wide receiving core or just better guys to be surrounded with on the offensive side of the ball in Carolina than what he had last year with the Patriots. Look, you've got DJ Moore. DJ Moore is having a solid season, to say the least, with a rotating door of quarterbacks so far with PJ and Sam Darnold. Now Cam could come into that situation and that could be potentially his third quarterback to deal with. And then you also have Robbie Anderson. Robbie Anderson's been kind of suffering from lack of targets the last couple of weeks, really the whole season to a larger extent. And then you got Christian McCaffrey in the backfield. Granted, he does have a checkered history when it comes to being able to stay healthy. But when I look at those three guys compared to what he had to deal with last year with New England, it's definitely a step up. It's just that whether or not he's going to be the starting quarterback moving forward. And granted, I don't know who's going to start this weekend. I would probably say it's going to be PJ, but I imagine that Cam's going to get some looks if PJ's not getting the job done offensively for Carolina. So I need to see whether or not that he can throw the ball still effectively. He had a whole offseason ready to go where he's fully healthy. We haven't seen Cam this healthy probably since 
2017, 2018. It's been a while since we've seen Cam this healthy. And if he's still struggling to throw the ball accurately, and if the ball just does not have the zip like it used to back when he was winning an MVP in the middle of the 2010s, then yeah, it's going to be a struggle for Carolina to really salvage this season to kind of get back into contention for the NFC South. I still think that the Saints and the Buccaneers are head and shoulders above them. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, they played against New England last week and they only scored six points. And Sam Darnold threw three interceptions. So I don't know if it could get necessarily any worse than what Sam was doing last week as far as having either PJ or Cammon. But I understand the move that Carolina made. They had to make a move to fill the roster spot with Sam being out for potentially the next couple games. But is Cam the guy to really kind of push that team to get back into some sort of playoff contention? I don't see it. And I unfortunately for Carolina, that's just the way that I see it. They're just a mid-level team at best. And depending on who they have finishing at the quarterback spot, I think they finish the season probably somewhere around like eight and nine, nine and eight, or maybe like seven and ten. I just I don't really see any sort of way that Cam really gets that team over the hump as far as far as getting back into some sort of playoff contention. I just don't see it. Yeah, and I mean for them to go out and spend ten million, like I said before, on legitimately what's going to be a half margin of the season, or you know the the second half of the season, that screams to me one thing. And Kyle and I were talking about it before the episode. Cam's a filler. Bradford's, excuse me, not Bradford. Donald's on his way out. Mm-hmm. PJ is entrusted with this offense. Matt Rule is going to be on the hot seat. Mm-hmm. They're going to need a quarterback in the draft. Well, here's the thing. I'm looking at their schedule right now. So, first game that Cam could potentially play in, going up against the Cardinals. That's a loss. They play Washington next week, or I mean the week after this one. They could possibly win that one. The Dolphins, they got a good shot of winning that one. Falcons, toss-up. You know, it's a divisional game. Don't really Atlanta's know are playing well. You know, those games are always kind of tough, though. But then after that, they play the Bills, the Bucks, the Saints, and the Bucks for the last four games of the season. He's dead. They're dead. There's no, there, there's no way. There's They're no dead. way. I see maybe... I see three wins here. And that would be against Washington, Miami, and Atlanta. After that, though, they're losing to the Bills. They're losing to the Bucks probably twice. And even with Trevor Simeon at the helm for New Orleans, I just don't see Carolina going into New Orleans and beating them with whoever they have at the quarterback spot. So, yeah, I think Carolina's just in a situation where, best case scenario, they get seven wins as far as I see the rest of their schedule playing out because there's no way that they're going to finish off the season winning the rest of their games. There's just no way. I mean, how if they always scored six points last week against new England and they always scored 19 against Atlanta the week before. So this team offensively, man, they really do struggle when they're not fully healthy. And with really the battering of injuries that they've had to crucial spots with Christian McCaffrey, Sam Darnold, I just, I just don't see it for them. You know, I hate to put Carolina in like that predicament, but that's just the state of Carolina right now. I think defensively, like they're, they're okay, but offensively, man, they just, they just don't have it. 
It's unfortunate because it, if they had a, if they had a decent quarterback, I think that this team could probably finish like ten wins. But they just don't have, they have the they, talent. The defense is good. They just don't have the competent quarterback play, and it's it really is that simple. You just don't have a competent quarterback back there. Just not going to be able to get it done. And it's oh, just, well. it, it's just unfortunate. But you know, that's really kind of the state of Carolina right now. But with that said, we're going to transition into our NFL Week Ten featured games. So the first one that we're going to go over will be the Seattle Seahawks going up against the Green Bay Packers. So to give you guys an update where these teams currently are, Seattle is currently sitting at a 3-5 and five record. This is the first game that they will get Russell Wilson back after he missed the last three to four games after suffering a broken finger. And then with Green Bay, Green Bay is sitting at 7-2. and two. They're at the top of the NFC North, and this will be Aaron Rodgers' first game back after he missed last week's game against the Chiefs due to testing positive for COVID-19. So to kick the question to you, Kevin, between the quarterback matchup that we have with Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson, which quarterback are you favoring in this matchup? Well, I'm probably going to favor towards Aaron Rodgers solely before I know he's probably upset he couldn't play last week. And, you know, the Green Bay Packers were legitimately a half a competent quarterback away from, you know, beating the Chiefs. Um, I feel like Russell's going to struggle with that finger. We don't know exactly how that's going to pan out in terms of Will he be able to take hits? If he does, if he falls on it, if, God forbid, he gets hit again, will it be okay? Um, he's also got to get back into game shape. He's been out for about four or five weeks, or three or four weeks, excuse me. Uh, so we have to see how that chemistry is going to go. we got to see if he's got a little bit of rust to him. And I just genuinely think that um, the offense of Green Bay is better than the defense of Seattle. So if I'm really looking at this, I just genuinely think that Aaron Rodgers is going to carve up this Seattle secondary, and I think that he is going to come in with a – a little bit of a chip on his shoulder saying, you know what, I missed last week, but I'm going to show everybody we should be 9-1. and one. Yeah, I, I'm in full agreement here. I'm siding with Aaron Rodgers. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, before he tested positive for COVID, I mean, he led the Packers on a huge winning streak after taking that week one loss to the Saints where they lost by five touchdowns. And, I mean, they beat some really good teams along the way, including the Arizona Cardinals, uh, the I want to say two weeks ago. Two, yeah, AJ Green ago. lost that game, not not uh, not Kyler. But but still, Aaron Rodgers is coming off of an MVP season from last year. He's really followed it up with another phenomenal season, and it's really just become it just he's so consistent in that regard of just being able to just carry that offense to a top tier offense in the National Football League, and that's not to discredit. You know, it's not to discredit Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson's done a phenomenal job with the Seahawks. Just, I just like Aaron Rodgers in this matchup simply because I think he has better overall targets to throw to. That's despite the fact that Russell Wilson has DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett at his disposal. But I just think the overall chemistry that Aaron Rodgers has with Devontae Adams, that he has with Marcus Valdez-Scanling, and Alan Lazard. I just think that the chemistry between Aaron Rodgers and those receivers is just an overall better matchup than what Seattle can produce with Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf with Russell Wilson throwing it to him. So when it comes to Russell, though, I think he's going to be a little bit shaky in this game. I think there's going to be some rush shown off simply because it's like you said, he's missed the last month because of that finger injury that excuse me, that finger injury. And I think 
if Green Bay gets some pressure on him, I got to see whether or not that he is still accurate. You know, Russell is still one of the better quarterbacks in the league. That goes without saying. But, I mean, if he's getting pressure, is he going to take, is he going to allow, you know, that follow through on his passes, like where that finger could get in potentially harm's way once again, like it did against the Rams when he injured it, when they played the Rams, I want to say over a month ago. So, I still think that both quarterbacks are going to be able to move the ball effectively up and down the field. It's just I'm siding with Aaron Rodgers in this one just because dude's a machine, man. The guy just doesn't stop. And even despite all the drama that came in into the season, he's having a phenomenal season. And I think it's going to continue against the Seahawks in this game. Yeah. Circling is going to be the addition of Chris Carson coming back off of injury. Chris Carson is unfortunately another running back throughout his pretty much entire career since he actually became a starter in this league has been riddled with injuries every single season. He's Mm -hmm. been active every single season. He's been a part of an NFL league roster. So how will he come back? Obviously how Russell's going to come back. Will DK get his targets? Will DK have a big game? Will DK have a non-existent game? Will Tyler Lockett be targeted more than five times? There's too many question marks to me in this Seattle offense. And I'm just looking at it, and I think that Green Bay is more consistent, and I just think that they're a better team overall. So with the game, as far as the prediction goes, just which team do you see winning and why? I got Green Bay winning solely because they have Aaron Rodgers on their team. I think that with him and Devontae Adams, there's not a single corner on that Seattle roster that can guard him. Um, I think that Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon are absolutely having an incredible season thus far, splitting carries, or at least you know taking turns at carving defenses up. I think Matt LaFleur has got, done a very good job at this team uh, overcoming the offensive, or should I say the offseason issues with Aaron, and I think that they're going to be a competitor in the NFC. Yeah, I'm in full agreement here. I think Green Bay wins this game. I'm not going to say relatively easily. I still think that with Russell on the other side of the ball, going up against Green Bay. I think the Seahawks are going to be able to keep it closer, but I just got to favor Green Bay winning this one probably by about 7 to 10 points. I do think that both teams will be able to score, but I think Green Bay, I think they get like 31, 34 points in this game, and I think Seattle, I think they crack like 21, 24. So if I had to put a score on this one, I got the Green Bay Packers winning this one by the score of, we'll say 31, 21, just because... I just see more consistency from Aaron Rodgers this season than I have from Russell Wilson. There have been times where that Seattle offense has sputtered to a certain extent. But with Green Bay, they've been very consistent the entire year with Aaron at the helm. You combine that with the fact that they're getting great run production with Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon, like you mentioned. And when it comes to both defenses, Green Bay's played better. And Seattle has had historically one of the worst defenses in recent memory ever since the Legion of Boom have left. And it's kind of left a pretty big void as far as just defensive personnel that they've fielded outside of Bobby Wagner. And overall, the team has really suffered to a larger extent because of it, just because that defense is just not being able to stop opposing offenses like they used to just five or six years ago. So I think the Packers, they move on to eight and two. I think they extend their lead in the NFC North to pretty much an unbelievable margin where I don't think anybody, I don't even think the Vikings really have any sort of shot to get back into that race whatsoever. And I just, I think for Seattle this year, I just think it's lost for them. 
I really was thinking that, you know, if Geno Smith had been able to keep that team at 500 or possibly even above 500 until Russell got back, I think that would have kept them afloat. But with them being two games under 500, you got half the season to try to make some some sort of wild card spot. And it's probably going to be the last one because either the Cardinals or the Rams are going to get the first one. I just don't think it's in the cards for Seattle this year. I just think that Russell injury really put them behind the eight ball. And they were even struggling before then. So, yeah, it, I think Seattle, they, they get bumped down to three and six. And I think, I, I mean, I'll pretty much say it. I think it effectively ends their season. Couldn't agree more. So, it's it's unfortunate. You know, it's just injuries, man. Injuries suck. But it really is a part of the game. I, I know this. I, I know that. I, I know. It's just... You know, Russell's a huge dynamic playmaker for them, but I have to say, with him being out of the lineup, it really showed just how many weaknesses he was covering up for that team because he had been playing stellar football for the last couple of years with a subpar defense despite having, you know, an all-pro linebacker and Bobby Wagner back there. But it's just not enough. That offense can only carry that team so far, and then you tie that along with how many injuries that they've had at the running back spot. I mean, they've never been the same since Marshawn's left. So it's just overall, it's just injuries, man. It could just derail a season. And I think in this case with Seattle, I think it's apropos, but I don't even, don't even know what that means, but I agree. Yeah. But with that said, we are going to transition into our second feature game, which will be the Kansas city chiefs going up against the Las Vegas Raiders. So to give you guys an update on where both teams stands currently. We have the a, a pretty solid and a really tight AFC West division at this current moment in time. All four teams, including the Chiefs and the Raiders, all have five wins. And in this matchup, the Raiders are, I believe, tied for the top of the AFC West at this current moment in time. And then you've had the Chiefs, who have been inconsistent throughout most of the season so far, but this is their first time being over 500 since the beginning stretches of the season. And that's despite the fact that they've been dealing with some pretty significant offensive inconsistency issues throughout the first half of the season. So Kevin, to pose the question to you, can Patrick Mahomes lead the Chiefs over the Raiders this weekend, despite the amount of offensive inconsistency that we've seen from Kansas City so far this year? I don't know. There are games like last week where you look at this team and you say, how do you only score 13 points against a team that was without Aaron Rodgers? There are games like the Washington game like where they, they just turn it on in a half. And then there's games like the Giants game where they're playing good, but then they have some bad drives, but then they go down the field and score at will. So I, Kansas City has probably been one of the most inconsistent teams all year, and that is something I never thought I would be saying in this Patrick Mahomes era of his prime. And obviously with the addition of Josh Gordon, which me and Kyle Bolt said was kind of pointless. The man hasn't really played much meaningful football in a little bit, so he's not even getting any relevant targets. So I'm just looking at this, and I'm, I'm looking at this roster, and I'm saying, well, you know what? They have Pat Mahomes. But are you going to get the Pat Mahomes that has to force the ball three or four times down the field at risking the two or three turnovers? Are you going to get the Pat Mahomes that is analyzing and breaking down defenses with his ability to stretch the field? Or are you just going to get lights out MVP Pat Mahomes? You know what I'm saying? Like, he legitimately has, like, three faces this season. And it's just, like, 
it's really too much of a toss-up for me to even say because you look at the Raiders and you, you, you think, well, they're not that good, but then they have games like they did two weeks ago where Derek Carr goes for like three tuts and then freaking Ngakwe has like two and a half snaps with a strip, with a strip fumble. So you're like, well, the, the defense is playing solid and the offense is playing good, and I think that this team can compete, but then they lose to the Giants last week. So once again, both teams inconsistent. It's really hard for me to pick who I think is going to win. But if I had to put a nail on it, I would probably just lean toward the Chiefs just because of Pat Mahomes. Yeah, this is a tough one for me because when I look at Patrick Mahomes, this is by far his most turnover-prone season that we've ever seen from him. Just because he seems to me like he's playing hero ball. And that's not to discredit him whatsoever. It's because offensively as a unit, this team has really struggled. They The offensive line has failed to protect Patrick because he's already been sacked over a dozen times this season and is on pace to be sacked the most amount of times in one single season so far. And then you go along with the fact that I think NFL defenses have finally figured out how to contain this Chiefs offense. And what it essentially accounts for is just putting two safeties deep, possibly 25, 30 yards, and taking the home run play away from that Chiefs offense, which... Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs have feasted on for the last couple of years with Tyreek Hill, Demarcus Robinson, and McCole Hardman. So Kansas City has to make an adjustment to that. They got to focus on these short and intermediate routes because those safeties are not allowing anything behind them. And this is where I think Eric Bieniemy and Andy Reid, they have to kind of make that adjustment. It's like, okay, well, we're going to focus on some 5 to 10, 15-yard routes instead of working on these routes that take 20 to 25 yards down the field to be able to make, but it takes three or four seconds for those to develop. So I would like to see like Tyree kill get involved in the passing game more as far as like short intermediate routes go Travis Kelsey. If he can find some soft spots in the zone against the Raiders, I think that can definitely work, but I definitely want to see Patrick not turn the ball over. Now, granted he did not turn the ball over against the Packers last week. That was like the first game in over a month where he was able to do that. There was a big stretch where he had multiple turnovers in in a row as far as like in the games that he was playing from like week three to like week eight where he was turning the ball over multiple times. And, you know, I guess last week you could say it was a step in the right direction. But I do think that the Raiders... They're going to play some solid defense against Pat, and I think they're going to put him into some situations where, you know, you're going to have to fit some balls into some tight windows and better hope that he could thread the needle because he has been off with his accuracy this year just because he has been turning the ball over. So I think as a whole, this is a really tough pick for me because I think I want to say Kansas City, and I'm going to go with them just because they got Patrick Mahomes at the helm. And... I think the only reason why I'm going with them is because of that and the Raiders and the amount of off-season issues that they've been dealing with this entire year. It started with John Gruden resigning. Then you had Henry Ruggs with his DUI situation. Now you got Damon Arnett with the situation where he was posting guns on Instagram that led to his release. And I think it's getting to the point where I think that the Raiders are just consumed by the amount of off-the-field issues that they've been having. And I just don't think that this team is going to be able to get back into form against Kansas City this week. It was kind of a surprise loss that they had against the Giants. 
last week, but for this week, I just don't think that the Raiders are going to get it done, and I'm going to favor the Chiefs in the one. I'm going to favor the Chiefs in this one, but I think it's going to be relatively close. I think the Chiefs only win this game by like three or four points. I think it's like, you know, twenty-four to twenty-one, like somewhere in that margin. But that's how I see it going. Yeah, I mean, I can't even say it's going to come down to who makes the first mistake. I mean, you know, Derek Carr is not necessarily a turnover-prone uh, quarterback, but if they're not able to, if they're unable to convert, if they're out here making miscues, if they feel like they're not able to produce um, in their play calling, then that's just going to give Pat more opportunities to go out there and, and try to make plays for himself. So. Again, as I tend to say a lot recently, I don't know why it's a phrase I just continue to repeat. Even at work, it's been kind of weird. Um, only time will tell. And the only thing we can do is, is really just hope for the best because we all know the potential that Patrick Mahomes has. We've seen it for the last three seasons in which mm-hmm. he can just destroy an opposing defense in a millisecond. And as we've seen this season, he can really feed and give a defense confidence in a millisecond. So what pad are we going to get? That's what it all comes down to. Yeah, it's just I would like to see the Chiefs try to run the ball a little bit more than they have. I think that they have the personnel to do it. And, you know, I know Clyde Edwards-Hilaire has been out the last couple weeks due to injury. But Darrell Williams and Derek Gore, when they've got their touches, they've shown me enough that they could make some plays given the opportunities. But I just think with the system that Andy Reid has in place, it really is a gunslinger mentality. When you got some guy like Patrick Mahomes at the quarterback spot with just the dynamic playmaking that he's capable of. I think he tends to favor that than trying to create a well-balanced offense just because his play calling shows that there have been multiple times where the chiefs have thrown at least 40 times this year. And if he gets into a situation where the chiefs are down early, hell, I mean, Patrick Mahomes could throw the ball up to 50 times if it gets that out of control. So I, I think the big point of emphasis with Kansas City this week, try to create a well-balanced offensive attack against the Raiders. Try to get a combined like 20 carries between like Derek Gore and Daryl Williams. Potentially, If you could get up to 25, that'd even be great. But I just don't think that that's going to happen. I think, you know, Patrick is probably going to throw the ball at least 35, if not 40 times this week. That's just the way that Andy Reid has the system set up this year. And the way that they've pretty much run that system since Patrick has got there. So I think they're just going to, I think they're going to stick with what's worked in the past, but they have to make adjustments. I think this really kind of shows the, the amount of issues they, that they've been having on the offensive side of the ball this year is really just from a lack of adjustments. And I think it's because I think Andy Reid has fallen in love with that gunslinger mentality that Pat has had, but Hey, if the defenses are figuring you guys out. You got to make an adjustment. And up until this point, they haven't. They've really yeah. struggled as an offensive unit this year. And defensively, I mean, dude, they're a tire fire. I mean, they damn near lost to the Packers last week who had Jordan Love, and he only scored seven points. So it really kind of shows how weak this team is. And unless they get some more balanced effort from the offense with running the ball and Pat not turning the ball over, they're just going to continue to struggle. These games are going to be a grind for KC this year. And I don't know if KC's that type of team that can grind out games compared to what they've just done with blowing out teams in the past. I just don't see that happening unless they find some sort of spark on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, that's all I got to say. It'll just end up being repetitive. It's kind of disappointing yeah. to know yeah. that a, a guy like Patrick is struggling this much. A man that we've seen that has been so gifted, uh, almost like unheard of in the sport of football in terms of what he's been able to do on the field. And then he comes into this field, it comes into this season, and it's almost like he looks like a completely different player. So it's, 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 it's weird. It's like I said, though, there have been multiple times where he's turned the ball over simply just because he's trying to do too much. He's trying to make a play out of nothing. And it's led to some tip passes. It's led to some errant throws. And a lot of these passes that he was getting away with the last couple of years when he was just running and gunning, NFL defenses are not having it. And it's like I said, it really kind of stems from the fact that they are putting two deep safeties back and they are not allowing Pat to hit them deep on that home run ball anymore. It's not happening. I think really the the only home run ball that I've seen from KC this year was like in week one against Cleveland where they had as a 75-yard touchdown at Tyreek Hill. But outside of that, that home run ball has been lacking, to say the least. And that's just due into part just the defensive adjustments that these teams going up against KC have made. And you got to give them credit for that. I really do think that Tampa gave the NFL a blueprint on how to beat this team. You literally put seven back. You bring three or four pass rushers. Hell, I mean, you can even drop eight back there. And you just let Pat kind of run, run, run around in the uh, the backfield. Let him try to make something. But when you got seven, eight DBs back there, it makes it a living nightmare. And if you if he's going up against a good pass rush, like he did against Tampa in the Super Bowl, you're going to get lit up. So these defenses figured him out. Now he's got to make the adjustment. It really is that simple. Yeah, it feels only that simple in real life because if we can analyze and see that that's the difference in our living rooms or in our bedrooms, I don't know why the enemy can't. So before we go down that rabbit hole, um, I know we got another game to cover. Yeah, so this will be the last featured game that we talk about for Week 10, and it is going to be the Cleveland Browns going up against the New England Patriots. So both teams currently sit at 5-4. and four. Both teams are in respective battles for trying to vie for the top spot in their respective divisions in the AFC North with the Browns and the AFC East with the Patriots. Uh, the Browns get off to a really good start with not having the Odell drama hanging over their head anymore. They had a very solid win over the Cincinnati Bengals last week. And with the Patriots, the Patriots have been on a three-game winning streak so far. And last week, they came off of a pretty solid win on the road against the Carolina Panthers, where they held the Panthers to only six points. And it kind of goes to show just how impressive that defense was against Carolina last week. So, Kevin, to kick the question to you, Nick Chubb is not going to be in this game. And that's a significant blow for Cleveland moving forward in this game, simply just because Nick Chubb had a phenomenal game against the Cincinnati Bengals last week. So, with Nick Chubb not being in the lineup for Cleveland this week. Just how crucial of a loss is it for Cleveland in this game against the Patriots? I think it's absolutely pivotal for their success. I mean, they win when Nick Chubb has good games. And I mean, the formula is proven. Look at last week, 41 points. Uh, Baker didn't really have to do too much. Now all the pressure's on Baker. Not that Dearness Johnson can't go out there and that he can't play effective, uh, efficient football. But I genuinely don't think he's going to demand the effect that Nick Chubb does in terms of a defensive scheme. 
So I think that Belichick is going to dial up some good blitz packages, if not some good zone blitz coverages, to really put the pressure on Baker. Let's be honest. Baker's got a messed up shoulder. You knock him down a couple of times. You rush him. You, you, know, you, you hit him a couple of times. It might make his life a, a, a living hell in that backfield. You force Baker to make the plays with his, with his arm, and then you see what happens. Because if I'm being honest, I'm not stacking the box for Dearness Johnson like I would for Nick Chubb. And again, that's no disrespect to Dearness. That's just straight up the truth because Nick Chubb is probably a top five running back in this league when healthy. And the fact that he's not back there, I'm looking at it. If I'm the Patriots defensive coordinator, I'm sitting there like, ooh, man, I'm, I, that's a sigh of relief to me. So I don't necessarily think that Baker's going to be able to carry the load on his shoulders. The Patriots have been surging lately. I think that their defense has been playing exceptionally well, even without Stephon Gilmore. And Mac Jones, like a lot of NFL analysts have been saying, he does what it takes to win. He moves the ball down the field. He doesn't turn the ball over very much. And he knows how to manage the clock successful formula to win football games. Good defense. Damian Harris runs the ball great. They have a great kind of three-headed, not monster, but a good three-headed little uh, carousel of running backs back there. The rookie Stevenson, obviously Brandon Bolden and and, uh, Damian Harris. I think it's going to be not a blowout, but I think the New England wins this game by about seven to ten points just because of the lack of weapons that Cleveland is going to have and the injuries that they have to overcome. With Nick Chubb, it's obviously a huge blow if you're not going to be able to have him on the field against New England. I mean, the guy has been off to a great start this year. The guy has over 720 yards on the ground to go along with six rushing touchdowns. And it's only coming on 120 attempts. So when you kind of average that out, he's getting upwards of, what, five yards per carry, which is absolutely phenomenal. But even with that said, if... Nick Chubb does not play in this game. I still think that Cleveland is going to try to make an effort with running the ball with Dearness Johnson. And we have seen Dearness Johnson be able to step up in big moments when Cleveland has been dealing with some major issues when it comes to injuries in the running back spot. You know, we saw against the Broncos on a Thursday night game where he single-handedly took over that fourth quarter and he could not be stopped. Granted, you have to give a lot of credit for the offensive line for giving him space to run in. But still, for Dearness Johnson to be able to make the plays that he made against the Broncos, the Patriots definitely have to account for that. So that they will definitely not be they will definitely be focusing on Cleveland trying to run the ball with him. So and I will say this, you know, Cleveland's going up against New England's defense, and New England's defense has a subpar rush defense. So I think Cleveland's point of emphasis for this game is just try to create a balanced attack with Baker potentially throwing the ball, you know, 25, maybe 30 times at the most. But I expect a decent amount of carries from Dearness Johnson. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets 20, 25 carries in this game, just because they know that New England's rush defense can be had. It's just they got to open up the run lanes for him. And I guess when it comes to the overall game itself, I'm going to favor the Patriots in this one simply because I think the Patriots defense is better. And with the way that they've been playing the last couple weeks, I think it's shown that I'm not going to discredit what Miles Garrett and that pass rush that Cleveland has been able to establish this year because that pass rush has been absolutely phenomenal with Miles Garrett leading the way. But there have been times where this Cleveland defense has been exposed. And New England has gone up against some pretty decent teams of late. And they beat the Chargers. Just a couple weeks ago, 
They got a good win against Carolina last week. And then they've played some really competitive teams like the Buccaneers and the Cowboys, where they only lost those games by one possession. And I just think with New England, the main thing with me is can they run the football? They are dealing with some issues with injuries to the running back core. Damian Harris is dealing with a concussion. I also believe Ramondre Stevenson is dealing with a concussion as well. So their injury status is kind of up in the air for this game. But if they're able to play and they're able to get some good run lanes, I think to go along with a decent game from Mac Jones, I think it'll be enough to propel New England over Cleveland in this game. I think it's going to be a close game because both teams are kind of on the edge as far as trying to vie for a playoff spot. We're still only halfway through the season. You know, there's still a lot of games left to be played. But this is a pivotal game for both teams here. But I think the Patriots get this one. I think this one, I think they win this one by about seven points. If I had to throw a score out, I'm going to say like 27 to 20 for this one. I think this is a game where neither team cracks 30 points. But I think it's going to be a phenomenal game moving forward. So I'm definitely looking forward to this game in week 10. Yeah, it's definitely probably one of the better games that are going to be available outside of the other two that we had just talked about. But, I mean, if we're being honest, um, well, first of all, I didn't know Damian Harris was going and dealing with a concussion. That mm-hmm. screws up my fantasy team that I'm already thin at at running back, so thank you for the update. Um, also, I don't know if the uh, the Patriots are in a position in which they're not favored to win the next couple of, of games that they have scheduled. I mean, realistically... The way that you guys are picking things up on the defensive side of the ball, the way that you guys are playing efficiently on the offensive side, I really do not believe that uh, you guys are completely out of the playoff race. So I do agree that this is going to be a pivotal game for you. I don't want to say it's a must win in terms of making the playoffs, but I would probably say in terms of importance and confidence, this is a must win game as a team because I just feel like you win this game, you still got to play the Jets. You still got to play the Dolphins again. And I, I, I think that realistically it's possible. And I mean, who's to say if Buffalo doesn't continue their disgusting performance against Jacksonville, you guys might even have an opportunity to go after the division title. Yeah, it just depends, though. So, I mean, I'm looking at New England's schedule for the rest of the season here. So they play Cleveland at home. Then they play Atlanta on the road on three days rest. They play on the Thursday night game on November 18th. And then they got a pretty tough stretch after that. So they got to play the Titans. They got to play the Bills twice and then the Colts. That four-game stretch is going to be absolutely pivotal. But Colts will probably win. But it, it but it comes along with if you, they beat the but... it comes along with the Browns and the Falcons. Oh, when that game happens between the Patriots and the Colts, bro, we're going to be bitter enemies that week. I'm just letting you know. We right always now. are every yeah. single time. Bro, bro, the amount of smack talking that's going to happen that week is going to be off the chain, my guy. I'm I'll just, just letting block you know. You. I'll just block your number because you're a I mean, pain in the ass. I, all, all I know is, like, for both episodes, bro, I'm I'm wearing Patriot jersey. I'm just letting you know that right it's now. Fine, I'll wear my Colts jersey as it's supposed to be. I just, God, you get so annoying whenever we play each other. It's such a pain. I know because we've owned you the last decade or so. So I'm, I'm aware. Oh my god, I'm aware. <laughs> but to, to get back on topic, though, right, right, right. You know, these next two games, I think, are absolutely crucial because I think that they could beat the Browns. I think the Falcons is a winnable game. But the Titans, the Bills, the Colts, and then you got to play the think Bills you again. Can ta- I think you can I, take one of the Bills games. I really do. I, I think so, too. And I'm not going to lie. I'm looking at the Titans game. I think we can win that one. Because we play at home. They don't have Derrick Henry. 
And that Titans defense can be had. There have been multiple games this year where they give up a lot of points. Granted, there have been games, surprisingly, like the KC one where they only gave up three points. But I, I actually like that matchup. So it would actually be astonishing to me if they really kind of continued their winning ways past the Falcons game. Because I'm assuming that they win the Browns game. That bumps them up to six and four. And I mean, they're well, going to be... Bills, bills, are, bills are what, five and three? They are six. They are six and uh, six and three. They are six and three. We're five and four. That's a so, game out, bro. So I, I'm not. I'm not saying it's impossible, but you know this team is still young as far as like the offensive side of the ball goes, with just max inexperience. And I think that's going to be a focal point moving forward. So you know it, it's definitely going to be interesting moving forward i'm not saying that the patriots are out of the playoff hunt yet it's it's way too early to say that but they um if they play their cards right they could definitely they could buy for a, a playoff spot it would probably be a wild card but i mean if the bills keep slipping like they did against jacksonville last week which nobody had i'm like i, I really want to find who actually bet on that jacksonville game where they picked the Jags to win that game because that, 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 that was the upset of the year as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, I just expect that the Bills are going to be able to get back on track. They play the Jets this week. So, I mean, I would be surprised oh. if the Bills hang up 50 on that game. Mike, Mike the GOAT, White. White. And he is starting. Agreed. He is, he is starting. I know he got hurt last week when he was playing against the Colts. I tell you, though, right now, had Mike White stayed in that game, that would have been a much more competitive game. Because you remember how hot he got off to a start in that yeah, game. Yeah, I remember. I remember. But, you know, hey, I got to give you guys credit, though. Colts played really good. You know, granted, it's the Jets. but played still. all right. Hey, Jonathan Taylor. Go. I appreciate Jonathan getting me those points in fantasy that week. He got me like 35 I, points. I, I, I still lost in two out of my three, so yeah, but, that's great. Hey, it's not because he didn't produce. So Correct. It, it has nothing to do with him. It's Josh Allen's fault. I lost one league by four po- two points. I lost the other league by eleven. Yeah, it's just that's that's kind of the 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 beauty that is fantasy, though. It's just, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, know, I, I know, bro. Like, like when it comes to fantasy this year, it has literally been like an up and down season for me. So the first three games, lost all of them, three in a row to start the season. Then I come back and I win the next three. I lose one, and then I win one. And then I lost one last week. So it's literally kind of been just like back and forth the entire year. But dude, it's just, that's what I'm still going going to play it every year though. Cause I have to, bro, I I got Brady as my quarterback and not having Brady in my lineup. It really kind of showed cause I had had to put big Ben in last week cause my backup was Russell, but Russell still hurt. So, you know, it's just unfortunate that that scenario played out, but. You yeah, know, we didn't we didn't occur for a fantasy segment because that's that's a dark hole in and of itself, and let's let's just avoid that like the plague. Yeah, but you know, with that said, you guys that that'll wrap up the NFL portion of our podcast for this episode, and we're going to transition into some NBA topics. The first one being is just Golden State's absolute red hot start this year. They're coming off of a great win against the Minnesota Timberwolves Wednesday night, where. The team was phenomenal. They put up 123 points compared to 110 from Minnesota. And despite me saying 
that I thought that Golden State's championship window was closed. They have basically slammed that in my face and said, no, you are dead wrong. And not only are they the best team in the Western Conference, they are the best team in the NBA so far, 11 games into the season. A 10-1 record. Really can't get off to a better start than that. But, Kevin, I want to pose the question to you. Who do you have as the X factor for the Golden State Warriors to possibly propel them to a championship type of season this year? It's that boy, that Michigan boy. It's Jordan Poole, man. He's coming off the bench and doing everything he's supposed to do. He's scoring at a great clip. He's shooting efficient from the field. He's not turning the ball over, and he's running the second unit. And in some cases, he is running alongside Stephen Curry and providing a much-needed Robin to his Batman. Obviously, Clay's news for coming uh, back to practice in the next couple of weeks and then potentially making his season debut next month is absolutely pivotal. It probably motivates the team 10 times more because they say, you know what, we're red hot now, and two of our best players are coming back from injury. Obviously, I, don't, I haven't heard a timetable for James Wiseman. I don't know if you have either. But, again, we are sitting here looking at the Golden State Warriors at a 10-1 record, and they aren't even fully healthy yet. As Frieza would say, it's not even their final form. You feel me? Like, bro, Steph Curry's playing – at an MVP caliber level, Draymond's carrying the emotional freaking barrier that he always has, the enforcer, the physical dominance that he always has approached with the game. Um, obviously, you have Andrew Wiggins putting Carl Anthony Towns on posters in what in twice in the game last night. So, I mean, you're looking at it, and it's just every single player on that team is playing very well. The coaching staff has always been great, and it's, of course, led by the two-time MVP, three-time NBA champion that is Steph Curry. So I'm looking at this team and I'm saying, dude, they haven't even hit their peak yet. I'm in full agreement. I got to go with Jordan Poole as their X factor just because, you know, obviously Steph and Clay and Draymond. I mean, th- that's the three-headed monster that has carried this franchise throughout most of the 2010s to championship relevance. But with Jordan Poole, with the start that he's gotten off to this year, behind Steph Curry, he leads the team in points. He's averaging almost 18 points a game so far this season. And he has really kind of taken that next level step that, I'm going to be honest with you, I did not see coming. But he has been absolutely phenomenal this season. He's shown not just star flashes. They're like I'm not going to go as far to say like superstar flashes, but he has definitely shown some, some great potential flashes so far this year. And I hope it continues this year. And just... With the shooting ability that he's been off to this year, it takes a lot of the pressure off of Steph. Because if you're able to get good production from Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins, as far as scoring goes, you know, Steph doesn't have to go out there and get 35, 40 points a game. Like there were multiple steps, multiple stretches where he did that last year, where he single handedly just put the team on his back. But in this year so far, they've gotten great production. From the entire team. Steph's averaging about 27.5 points a game. Jordan Poole's around 18. Andrew Wiggins at 17.5. And And then Draymond is chipping in with like an 8-7-7 box score so far. So you tie all those factors together. And then you got Clay coming back in December. I think that's the timetable that we have set for him. As far as his return. Possibly even before Christmas Day. Man, once you insert Clay Thompson into the lineup. Sky's the limit with this team. 
That is despite the fact that we have to kind of see how Clay responds after not only suffering a torn ACL, but a torn Achilles and pretty much missing the last two seasons. So he may be a little bit rusty coming back into the fold for, for Golden State. But to me, Jordan Poole is that X factor because if he's knocking down his shots, that's three potential superstar monsters that you have to deal with as far as shooting the ball goes. And who would have thought that Jordan Poole would be possibly the third guy to really come up and be the shooting the shooting dude that he's become just in the first 11 games this year. So, I mean, the same you can say the same thing for Andrew Wiggins as well. Andrew Wiggins has had a phenomenal start to the season as well. It's like you said, two posters in one game against his old teammate in Carl Anthony Towns. Yeah, I think Golden State is in a really good space right now. Hopefully they don't suffer any injuries. That's always the one thing that can derail a season. But yeah, bro, they're off to a red hot start. And it's because guys like Jordan Poole that are just putting up monster numbers when I'm going to be honest with you, I was not expecting Poole to be able to do something like that. So I got to give that kid a lot of respect because he has earned my respect just through the first month of the season so far. Hey, I need y'all to remember something. I went on a little kick in the second half of the season last year about Steph Curry being the MVP, and he damn near came close to carrying this team into a playoff berth and an MVP alone with an injury-ridden team. Man just dropped his first 50-point game the other night. We are 11 games into the season. He dropped 50 with nine threes. He's already had a triple-double, multiple 30-point games. He's had a 40-point game, and now a 50-point game at 33. I need y'all to start putting some respect on this man's name. Just because KD are not on the team, just because Clay's not on the team back in full health, just because Wiseman was on the team last year and he got hurt, don't take away from the dominance that Steph Curry has. He is one of the greatest basketball players to be on an NBA floor. We are witnessing a generational, spectacular talent in which when he's on the floor, you have to pick him up full court, if not at half court, because he pulls from the logo. No one, has, no one has demanded that much defensive intensity since, I, I, I don't know, Braun, maybe, in terms of picking up at full court. I, I don't even know. I mean, Reggie had distance. Ray Allen never pulled from that deep. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I get Braun, when he was younger, used to pull as the shot clock kind of came through, you know, like, like, you know, as the shot clock, clock uh, ran down. But this is one player that you legitimately need to say, the second the ball touches his hands from the inbounds, you need to be at the half-court line like a brick wall and say, yo, I got to lock this man up. He demands doubles and triple teams and teams specifically scheme on him in a final second, last second shot uh, situation because they know that he can pull from legitimately anywhere on the court. We've seen him hit full court shots, three quarters of the court shot, half court shots, tunnel shots, backward shots, lefty shots, fucking floaters from what seems to be the three-point line. Limitless range, pure dominance, championship pedigree. You guys need to respect Steph Curry with or without any all-star teammates. He's out here carrying this team. And him pulling up 50 points already in 10 games, that's just crazy. Bro, I'm just glad glad you're kind of giving him his shine just because, it's like you said, man, Steph's been that dude. You know, granted, he did have a pretty solid lineup to run it with when when KD was in the fold. But, dude, 
I mean, the season that he put on last year, single-handedly carrying that team into the play-in tournament. Granted, they didn't make the playoffs after losing to the Lakers. And the sure, it sure wasn't his fault. Thirty-seven points in that game. Nope. But it's like I said, you know, with guys emerging like Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins actually seems to be consistently consistently shooting better this year than he has in years past. And then you got Clay coming back on top of that. I, I think. When it comes to this year for the Warriors, they're right back in it. Dude, they proved me wrong. I really thought that their championship window was closed. Just because I just didn't think that the amount of pressure that Steph would have to put on his back to be able to carry that team to the finals, I just thought it would be too great. You know, Granted, we still got to see how this team even gets into the playoffs because that Western Conference, dude, is still stacked. It will continue to be stacked. So I'm not saying that, oh, yeah, this is going to be, you know, full on, you know, the Warriors are instantly going to the NBA finals and they're going to win whoever they play against. I'm not saying that. But I have to respect what this man Steph Curry has done the last season. We're almost at a quarter. We're not not at a quarter yet, but still like the last, I'd say probably the last 80, 85 games that we've seen from Steph Curry. He has been absolutely phenomenal. And. The dude just continues to marvel. He is really one of those players, when you think about it, that revolutionized the game pretty much unlike most players have had outside of maybe Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Wilt Chamberlain. you got to put Steph in that company with guys who just revolutionized the game and made it completely different than what it used to be played prior to him. So, just... The way that he was able to innovate that three-point shot and to be able to knock down those shots effectively and consistently at the clip that he's had throughout his entire career, we're never going to see like we're never going to see somebody like that again as far as just raining down shots like he did behind the three-point line. I just don't think that we'll see it. You know, I, I understand that there's there's some young guys coming up like maybe like Luca and Trey Young where the three-point shot has definitely become more of a prevalent focus in the NBA than it has in generations past. But, dude, Steph's that dude. Everybody knows that, and he's just going out there and confirming it once again. <laughs> Been saying it for a couple years now. You know, shout out to my boy Mike Casada, the biggest Warriors fan I know, the biggest Steph Curry fan in the world that it, I know. D- doesn't his Twitter handle go like something like most dope Mike or something? Yeah, that's my dog. That's my boy. Yeah, because I think he follows us on Twitter. And he's always he's always talking about Golden State. Always, always. So I, hey, I remember there, there used to be this one kid I used to go to school with. Uh, his name was Gabe, and he was a Golden State fan back when they had dude like Monte Ellis, Stephen Jackson, that squad that begrudgingly Aaron beat. Davis. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I know where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just, I, but I'm just saying, like, that's how long that that dude was a fan of the Golden State Warriors. That was even before Steph. Yeah, that was, so, those were great teams back in the day, man. But it really, like, it comes full circle, though. Like, when you come from, like, you know, a team that can c- compete in the playoffs but not really compete for a finals, and then you had Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, and then eventually KD – and then you pull off three championships in that run, got to be well worth it, man. Has to be. Management, just, you know, Bob Myers, greatest GM, at least in the decade. Shit, he was able to pull off a lot of stuff that probably should not have been pulled off, but he made it happen. Do, do you think 
him getting Andrew Wiggins was an okay move. Yeah, I mean, it was fine. I mean, I, I think so. I mean, you got uh, Wiggins out of it. I mean, obviously, you, you got Wiseman out of it, too. Not like, terrible. I mean, the Kelly Oubre one, that seemed like a I miss. I don't want to talk about him. I don't want to talk about him. That seems like a 37 the other night. I don't think he scored over 30. Off the bench? He scored 30 points all last year. (laughs) Maybe maybe once or twice. That's disrespectful. disrespectful. But, but, bro, dude, he was hooping. He was hooping. I don't want to hear it, man. Kelly Uber pissed me the hell off. Um, you, you saw that dunk that Miles Bridges, though, where the announcers went absolutely Yeah, we sent each other every single dunk. There was a night, guys, where legitimately Kyle and I sent each other maybe like eight dunks in the NBA. It was just not only just posters, just crazy, just abnormal, just uplifting, athletic, just crazy shit. Bro, and te- we, loved, we loved every second. Oh, bro, but take your heads out there, fellas. It's, it's dunking season, and it's getting off to a vicious start. Remember what I said about Miles Bridges? The other day? Yeah, being the best dunker that's comparable to Vince Carter in terms of being in-game. That that might have been a little bit. A little bit. That might might have been pushing it. But, dude, I think, like, for me, the one thing that I noticed about him is the ferocity of his dunks are just on a similar level to what Vince Carter used to do back in the day. I, I think that still, by and large, Vince Carter's a better dunker. But I think as far as like this generation goes, bro, Miles be yamming those dunks home. Yeah, and he's athletic. But, but, he can but, jump but, out but, and go but, and get crazy but, but shit. The, but the, the, the thing with him that's different from like John Morant, like John Morant like legitimately goes out for body bags, but he can't finish them. With, with Miles Bridges, though, he finishes them. Not just with the right hand. He'll do it with the left hand, too. He's... He's ambidextrous in that way. And if you're able to do it like that, because he had that left-handed alley-oop the other day that was just absolutely insane. I think it was last night where he legit, where Terry Rozier threw it up too high behind him and he caught it. He's a lefty, but he caught it left-handed and was able to bring it in. It was just nuts. Dude, still, I got to give the man credit for that. Like, holy, holy hell. But, bro, it, dude, it's just the dunks, like the posters. I mean, Andrew Wiggins, two. Two. Two of them. I, and I know Cat felt some type of way. He was like, shit, it had to be me or it had to be him. It's like, hey, man, it's my old bro back there. He's. What? He, but, what bro, the head? But I, you did see Anthony Edwards, though. Yeah. 28 oh, points. C- youngest, youngest to do it under 21. Like one of the youngest outside of like, I think it was Braun, Luca, and somebody think, else. I don't even think Kobe did it by then. No, 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 no. Under twenty one, no. It was Braun, Luca, and somebody else. I can't remember who it was. It was only like there's only four of them in the club. It, it was kind of funny because like him and uh, Steph Curry, they were kind of chatting, and the, and then like after they finished their conversation, the camera focuses on Steph as he's walking away. He's like, "Not bad, young buck. Not bad." He's good, bro. Anthony Edwards is going to be a star in this. Yeah. League. He's a, a beast. A, by far the best inter- person to interview in the NBA, as far as like young hilarious. players go. He's hilarious. hilarious. Bro, it's <laughs> the dude can literally make like a joke out of like nothing. He'd be He's like a great, great. He could be like a, a like a great stand up comedian if he ever wanted to do like a side hustle on top of the NBA stuff that he does. He can talk about anything and it's funny. You're not wrong, but you know what's funny? You know what's funny to me? The NBA rule change to yeah. where NBA uh, players are <gasps> bitching about I, I, everything. And guess what? We got a superstar 
going out there and putting the NBA officials on blast for the way that these games are being refereed this season. So Damian Lillard, undeniable superstar for the Portland Trailblazers. Definitely got on the referees after a frustrating performance against the Los Angeles Clippers the other night. And I have the quote right here. This is from Damian Lillard. He said, the way the game is being officiated is unacceptable. And he's just basing that on the current state of NBA officiating. Kevin, I got to kick this to you. You think Dame is right or do you think Dame is wrong? I think Dame is full of shit. I literally saw like two or three plays in which people found videos of him abusing the rule that just changed. Whether that was him jumping into somebody for contact or that was him locking a defender's arms and throwing up a shot. I mean, for God's sakes, he did it in the bubble against the Lakers in the first round when they won the championship to where he legitimately caught the ball from the inbounds and threw the shit up and locked Danny Green's arms up and he got three free throws out of it. And he like ended up shooting it left-handed. That's not basketball. That's not a foul. That's, that's stupidity. We talked about this a couple of days ago on one of our episodes. And I'm just going to sit here and continue to say the same shit. If you are bitching about forcing incidental contact and you are not, literally, you are not being fouled, you are initiating the contact, you're an idiot. James Harden's efficiency has plummeted this season. Damian Lillard's effectiveness and efficiency from behind the arc and shooting stroke, garbage this season. Trey Young, nowhere near having the games that he used to have either. Three players that abused that rule specifically last year and in years past. I've had enough. I'm happy as a pig rolling around in a pile of shit and mud that this goddamn fucking rule has been changed. I am so ecstatic. Like, bro, I, I am a Luka Doncic fan. I am a Mavericks fan. I used to hate when he did that because I appreciate the game of basketball. I like the game of basketball. Player aside, the rules are the rules. Shit, I hate that hand checking gets called, for God's sakes, because at times you, you got to be able to utilize your hands at some point. And it's like I said in the last episode, if you have to play defense with your hands behind your back or with hesitancy to go and you know be able to touch the opposing player, that's not playing defense, and that's not basketball. So Dave's got to shut up because the rule ain't changing. Bro, I'm just so happy that the NBA made this rule change. It was time that they did it, and I'm really glad that they did it. And, Kevin, to kind of focus on a point that you were making with just the initiating of contact that a lot of these NBA superstars have gotten accustomed to because of the rule changes, because of the, the rules that they had in place before this rule change, Damian Lillard, before the rule change went into place this season, averaged over seven free throws a game last year. This year, he's averaging three. He's dropped off four free throws a game compared to last year. It's the largest drop-off in the league. I imagine probably James Harden and Luka are probably like not too far behind. But still, it really kind of goes to show just how much that these guys relied on these just egregious you know, initiating of contact and they would get the fouls from them when they're clearly the initiators of contact. And it's like you said, that's not basketball. That's just looking to get hit and then going to the free throw line. And, you know, granted, that was the rules that they had then. But the rules changed now and now they got to adjust to it. And, you know, Damian Lillard is not the only one that's, that complained about this either. James Harden has complained about it. But you know what? They were the biggest players who got away with those foul calls for years on end. Fans have been calling for that change for years. 
Now that they finally got it, and if the player's got a problem with it, you know what? Adjust to it. Make better shots. Try to get better separation from the defender that you're going up against instead of just holding the ball, hoping that that player jumps, and then you can jump into them to get to the free throw line. Not going to happen anymore. So, you know, it's like you said last week, just I'm glad that the NBA made these rule changes because it was definitely needed. And if it comes at the expense of these guys complaining about it, dude, I got no problem with that. You know, we saw it like in in the, um, we even saw it in the Olympics this past summer where, man, when those superstars are not getting the calls that they were used to compared to when they were playing in the NBA, it definitely showed. Who who made that comment? Yeah. I mean, was it, was it, was it Dame? I think, I think it was. I I think Dame was questioning. Something about the officiating just is not the same. The official, I'm not getting calls that I used to get in the league. I mm-hmm. feel like I'm not able to get my shot or whatever it is that he said, guys. I'm obviously paraphrasing, but there seems to be a pattern when Damian Lillard wants something. Granted, I love Damian Lillard. I love watching him play basketball. I think that Logo Lillard, Dame Time, all of those things are amazing. But when a player steps into this, gray area and i'm gonna call it a gray area because there are certain instances where you can consider them a foul and i get like i said it's a small granular area and i'm only referencing it to um not the jumping into players more so along the lines of when you're driving to the lane and you're consistently getting hit and they don't call it you have to bring those arms up to get the to, to you know to get the referee to see it I'm still siding with you need to completely cut that shit out because you are like like you said they are relying on getting to the free throw line to stop the momentum of the game, to get themselves in the rhythm, to see the ball go in the hole, or just straight up to play the to just 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 to just score. That's a, that's not a part of the sport. When this game was founded, I'm pretty sure they didn't look at it and say, "Well, you know what? If you run into five people, knowing that there's going to be ten arms in that in that pile, and you hope that you're just going to be able to run into one." That, that's 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 not basketball, man. No. Come on, bro. It's one thing you get clocked in the head. It's another thing if you blatantly see that you're getting slapped on both arms as you bring the ball in. It's a completely different concept when you are literally sitting here and you're driving into the basket and you're picking your arms up towards other players and flailing and asking for a call. That's not how the game is played. Granted, I wish we would have had AJ here for this because this would have been a great topic because he coaches basketball and he played basketball his whole life. I'm pretty sure in the group chat, AJ said something about the rule change is stupid. So it may not have been a good topic to actually. No, it would have been great to have because that would have been it would have been it would have been two on one. Because because here's the thing though it's 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 really quite simple in nature though it's to me it depends on who's initiating the contact because like for me here's the thing. Like, let's say, for example, Damian Lillard's dribbling the ball up the court. He gets into a situation where he crosses it over, and he does a pump fake. Like, he picks up the ball, does a pump fake, and the defender jumps. What we've seen from NBA players, not just Dame, it's multiple players, is that they'll literally just chuck their shoulder up and kind of, like, throw the ball up, and then they would always get the foul call. That was in years past. That's not the case anymore. And I'm kind of glad that it's... Not the case now anymore, because to me, despite the fact that the defender has jumped up in the air, that does not give you the right to just literally jump into the guy to get to the foul line and it be a shooting foul. Like for me, 
he's still initiating the content. It's it's the person that's initiating the content. Think of it as almost like, like it's almost kind of like offensive pass interference compared to like defensive pass interference. To me, it's the initiator who is making the the significant force on the contact. That to me is kind of the I'm, that's how I judge it based off of just the way that I see the game. And, you know, like with James Harden in particular, you know, when he would drive to the basket, he would always kind of do that thing where he would lower his shoulder and then swing it up and try to get a foul call that way. He's kind of like that hook thing that you were talking about. To me, James is the one initiating the contact. So he, he should get, he should get fouled for that. Meaning that he should get the, the personal foul. Not that, not the defender that he's going up against. The offensive, though. So, yeah, exactly. So, no, I'm glad that the NBA made these rule changes. Um, if it comes at the expense of these players bitching about it, I'm okay with that. You know what? I'm kind of glad that the NBA is not giving these players everything that they want. You know what? Sometimes, you know, I understand the whole player empowerment thing that the NBA has really kind of enforced over the last couple of years, allowing these players to really kind of take the lead on certain issues that have come up or just certain rules that come into play. But no, with this one, I've got no problem with it. Dude, I, bring back hand checking. You bring back hand checking and you make the game a little bit more physical than what it's been the last, I don't know, 10 years, 10, 15 years to say the least. I'd be happy with that. I think a more physical NBA makes it better. You know, I know I understand a lot of us like to see like these huge scoring matches where you know, both teams are just lighting it up on the scoreboard. But, you know, sometimes I like a good defensive a good defensive game. I think it's good for it. We don't see those defensive grind-out games anymore that we used to. They're very rare when they pop up. But it comes, it comes with just kind of creating a little bit more balance. And I think with the NBA, with the way that they've gone, they've definitely made the game more offensively centric with the rules that they had in place. But I think this definitely is one of those rules where it kind of kind of swings the pendulum a little bit more towards the defense. So I'm all for it as far as that regard goes. It's long, it's long overdue. Guys, I know that we are coming towards the end of the podcast. I know that this was the last covered topic. I got one thing to say. I got one more subject that's coming out of left field. Kyle, if you could put the camera on me real quick. The entire situation with the Morris brother and Nikola Jokic. I know it happened a couple of days ago, and I know we're late, but of course it would happen, you know, in a day where we're not recording a big episode. I'm just going to publicly go out there and say this. I think that the Morris brothers are some of the dirtiest players I've ever seen in basketball. And I say that wholeheartedly, not because of the two attempts to try to injure Luka in the last two playoff series against the Clippers. Not just because the Morris brothers have been always in a physical altercation on the court because of something they probably initiated themselves. Not because of their cocky attitude, not because of their stupid nature to just go out there and be enforcers, but in a dirty manner. But because we're getting to a point now where they have done this for so long, no one has stepped up to do anything about it. And now people are going out there and saying Nikola Jokic was wrong. And now people are going out there and saying that this has no place in basketball. If you are a grown man, and you are playing the sport of basketball, and you are aggressively fouled in a manner in which that is not appropriate for the game. There's plenty of ways to go and wrap him up to stop a fast break. There's plenty of ways to, to hit the arm and raise your hand. No, 
you had to run up to a seven foot plus former MVP, if not reigning MVP, and you didn't just hit him. You threw your elbow in which I don't know their exact size and weight, but I'm pretty sure the Morris brothers are six, seven plus. You know what I'm saying? Like 250, if not more, depending on, you know, what's going on in terms of their overall size. And you threw your body weight into Nikola Jokic, knocking him over to where you then walked off like nothing happened. Of course he's going to respond and knock you on your ass. What did you think was going to happen? You picked the wrong dude to fuck with. This isn't Luka Doncic. This isn't Brandon Knight or any of the other people you fucked with in the past. This is a man that will fuck you up. This is a man whose brothers were about to storm the court in an altercation of a playoff game. This is a man from a European country that people make fun of for the things he's probably experienced in life that he will do to you. You think, you think Jokic is scared to fight you outside? You think he's scared of Jimmy Butler? Are you kidding me right now? The man is a Serbian, six foot 11 or seven foot, almost 300 pound grown man. He is not scared of you. He will come into that locker room if it was allowed and if he could have, and he would have knocked you all down. I see him like the, the, the great Khalid in the WWE when we were in middle school. You just walk into the ring and just karate chop people in the forehead. Like, I just see Jokic walking in there and just like holding everybody down with limbs like be gone, peasants. So for this narrative to come out of nowhere, for Jokic to be dirty or Jokic to be unnecessary or uncalled for, needs to be shut down. The Morris brothers have been getting away with this for years, and Jokic was the one that responded and nicked it in the ass. Shout out to Nikola Jokic for finally stepping up and stopping them soft-ass plays because that's some bullshit, and that's how you get players hurt because what if he would have broken a rib or what if Jokic would have got severely hurt on that play? Then this would be a whole different narrative. But these players that they've hurt in the past have not come out and have had significant game-missing injuries. That Luka one with the ankle was probably the one that did it for me that really solidified where I thought that these players were really, really fucking dirty. But going out there, elbows straight high at six-something plus already, bro, uncalled for, unnecessary. The fact that Jokic got suspended and the Morris brother didn't is complete bullshit. Yeah, I mean, let him have it, bro. Jesus. But, you know, like the way that I see it, Jokic is not scared, like you said. Bro, they're from Serbia. Kevin, they drop bombs over there. Like, no bullshit. Like, the amount of real-life danger that they were exposed to growing up is 10 times more than any of these players have ever gone through in their life. You know, granted, I know, you know, some of these guys have come from, you know, rough neighborhoods, and, and I get all that. I guarantee you, not one of these players in the NBA that like grew up in the United States had to do a bombs getting dropped from where they were from. Like the Jokic brothers, all three of them, they are not scared. And as far as I'm concerned, what Markeith Morris did, that deserved a response because like you said, that they've been getting away with it for years. And now all of a sudden, you know, Miami has a problem with the way that Jokic did that. I'm like, he did what he needed to do to protect himself. And you know what? Why did Marquise Morris turn around? Why did he turn around after he did that to him and think like, oh yeah, nothing's going to happen? You mess with the wrong dude, you reap what you sow. So 
you know, had it been just like a like a rap foul, like where he just kind of like wrapped him like running up the court and had Jokic done that, yeah, Jokic would be in the wrong then. But no, you ran into him full speed with your elbow into his ribs and you turned around. Bro, don't turn around. You know what's coming. But apparently he didn't and Jokic wasn't having it. And you know, when it comes to Jokic, bro, that's the part of the game. You know, you follow one cheap shot with another one. And it, really, the cheap shot by Jokic was him just defending himself. And Jokic, I don't get the sense that Jokic is like a really like dirty guy. I mean, the, the guy is basically kind of like straight faced the entire game. Like, never really shows like a lot of like emotion on the court. So, I got no problem with it. I mean, even after the game, like Jokic was like saying, like it, it like it was a stupid play on my part. But you know, he was saying it's like I had to defend myself, and I get it. Bro, and Jimmy, Jimmy, you do not want those problems. I tell you right now, Jimmy, you do not want those problems going up against Jokic. Those dudes are different. And trust me, if it ever came to a scuffle between the, the Morris brothers and the Jokic brother and the uh, Jokic brothers, it wouldn't last five seconds. Those dudes would rip the Morris brothers apart. And the thing is, they all know it. They're just talking just because they know they can do it, but they are full on capping. Those dudes would get run out super quick. They couldn't handle the business. They couldn't handle I, the dance by the Jokic brothers. I just laugh because Jimmy's getting all uppity like, yo, meet me in the back. Meet me in the back. Like, bro, can you stop? You really, like, what got me mad is Miami's reaction. Like, nothing deserved the, what Jokic did. That's what gets me up in, a, in, a, in an uproar to where I, we have these segments where I just get pissed off. Because it's like, like you said, if it was a wrap-up or a soft foul and Jokic knocked him on his ass, then yes, 130% as teammates, you got to be like, yo, dude, you can't be doing that shit. You come to your teammates, A, because you're family. Your teammate, your brother, tried to hurt somebody, and you're mad someone defended themselves? Are you kidding me right now? Like, what kind of world is this in which your teammate's at fault? Yeah, you got to protect them at some point to the point of you saying, you know what, I got to stand up for them. But that's like a little brother going up to a kid, smacking him in the back of the head, and then expecting nothing to happen just because he felt like it. At that point, you got to let your brother get his ass whooped. That's what I did when my brother would go out there and act like a little idiot. So be it. When you get back home, you got a black eye, you got a scuff on your knee because he pushed you. Did you did you deserve it? Oh, okay. It's common sense, but this is playground shit. This is what doesn't make sense to me. You acting out of pocket because your boy did something that he shouldn't have done. And you mad because he looked like an ass. Suck it up, son. That's a part of the sport. You want to be a dick? Somebody was a dick right back. It's just that this man was a lot bigger than the other one. And you picked the wrong guy to fuck with. That's as clear-cut and concise as I can be. Jimmy got fired? Jimmy got fired? Granted, I know it wasn't much, but still, it's like... It's making $180 million. Nobody gives a shit. Yeah, 30000 ain't going to hurt his pockets. But it's like, I just don't understand why Jimmy would be like, yeah, like, meet us in the back. Like, really? And that picture, that picture of all the Miami Heat players waiting in the hallway. Do you really think the NBA was going to let the Nuggets go in that direction? Or Nuggets personnel, for that matter? Not even the trick. Really? That is such a soft image for you to be out there as a squad waiting for them, and, like and you was, was going to do something. And it was a full squad out there. It was like yeah. I, I, I saw. I think it was uh, Jimmy. It was Kyle Lowry and um, Bam. Bam. 
So, whoa, you guys look so tough. Yep. Like, you guys are all soft. You guys are idiots. Like, you really expect the Denver Nuggets to just walk down the hallway like this is 1925 and, oh, put them up there. Like, this is a fucking episode of Popeye, my guy. Get your ass, go take a shower, go do your interviews and go the fuck home. Like, if it's one thing, if you're in the parking lot where there's no media and shit and you're chirping at the bus, then that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother category. You think that the Nuggets are going to be allowed to go anywhere near that side of the locker room? Really? It's 2021. They don't even like when people get slapped on the hand with a foul. You think they're going to let you have an all-out brawl in the middle of the fucking Pepsi Arena or whatever the damn arena's called in Denver? You're out of your goddamn mind. You know, when I look at it, though, it gave them something to be mad about, despite the fact that they got freaking whooped by the Nuggets in that game. But nobody's talking about that. Everybody kind of discounts that part just because, you know, at, at that point, that wasn't the story. It was just Nikola Jokic versus Markeith Morris. But it was like, I watched the highlights from that game. Like, the Nuggets gave them the hands. And, uh, you know, when he they lucky, game, they game, lucky, game they lucky Jokic, they lucky Jokic didn't give him the hands. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> Oh, because that could have been a fight, bro. Had, had Morris been turned around, bro, that is... <laughs> honestly, he probably would have just walked him down. He would have just walked him down like he did Devin Booker last year. Like, I, I'll never forget, like, when when Jokic gave Booker that look. Like, when, like, when Book was, was like, really? Like, like you're like 6'4", going up against a guy who's 7 feet. Like, yeah, try me. Well, hey, let me just put this out there. For those of you that think I'm being ignorant, or for those of you that say the Morris brothers ain't about it in terms of fighting... Sure, they throw hands. Okay, they throw into they go into a fight. Just because someone's bigger in weight and height, don't mean that that means they're gonna win. I get that. There have been plenty of instances in history, David versus Goliath in real life, in which David sometimes wins. In this case, I don't think that's gonna happen because Jokic is about that life. Now, if that was Boban Marjanovic, I would say that the Morris brothers are probably gonna win because Boban would probably apologize. That's how nice he is. That's how soft he comes across. Nikola Jokic, you look at him and you think, do I want to do this? Like, that's when you need to second guess it. Whether you're a thug, whether you're a boss, whatever you want to categorize yourself as. A gangster, you're going to look at him and you're going to say, I'm going to fuck you up today. No, 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 no. That's when you step back and you say, if I do this, I get my ass whooped. Like, you need to think in your mind, of all the people you have the selection to, to fuck around with, you going to choose the biggest dude on the court? And probably, really? the best pl- and probably the best player? Not probably. He is the best player on the court there. He's better than Jimmy Butler. He's better than Kyle Lowry. He's better than Jamal Murray. There's no if ands, or buts about it. By the way, since we're on the topic of Denver, Michael Porter Jr. getting $205 million. Kudos to that man agent because he's out for the foreseeable future with a back injury that they have no idea what's going on. So... Way to go, Denver. He's the man of the future, my guy. Watch yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I'm just telling him, you. Him, him, him and Luca getting paid damn near the same fucking amount. And one of them is consistently in the MVP race. And the other one is averaging, like, what, 17 points a game in his career? Shut up. I mean, you really want to go the, the Luca route? I mean, did you watch that Chicago Bulls game? Did you Why watch am I? Game? No, I didn't watch the game. I knew we were going to lose. We can't beat good teams. The teams we have beaten have sucked. We beat the Pelicans without Zion and Brandon Ingram. We beat the Spurs twice, barely. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't beat good teams. We have all the teams we lost to were good teams. Teams above 500, competitive teams. We're not good at basketball. I said it on Twitter when I saw the box score. 
I said it when I saw the highlights. The team overall, lack of effort, lack of discipline, shot selections atrocious. And I just I just don't see it. I don't we don't have the personnel. We don't have a center. Dwight Powell is playing the center position and he's getting abused almost nightly on a nightly basis, bro. Ooh, you can jump you can jump really, really high. Ooh. No, bro, you have no physical presence, you can't play defense, and your and your offensive capabilities are, are, are questionable. Sure, you can get some good offensive rebounds every now and again. Sure, you get some athletic tip-outs. Sure, you're a great pick-and-roll player. You are not the typical or prototypical NBA 5 that we need. You're not consistent, you're not consistent enough at your three-point shot to be considered a stretch 5, and your hesitancy to shoot the basketball when you're open behind the line doesn't bode well with me saying, you know what, that's my starting center. To be completely honest, I'm not saying KP could do it, but I'd rather have KP back there at the five. I really would. I don't see us winning basketball games. I don't see us competing consistently in the Western Conference. We're going to need to make a move at the trade deadline because we're 7-4 and four right now, but again, the record doesn't reflect who we've played. We, have, we are not playing good basketball. Sterling Brown is playing absolutely like dog shit. Reggie Bullock has games where he looks great, great, and then he plays like shit. Trey Burke barely plays because he's unvaccinated, and Mark Cuban mandates all employees be vaccinated, so that's fucking lovely. Jalen Brunson is arguably the best player on this team outside of Luka Doncic, and he's playing phenomenal. Tim Hardaway Jr. is playing the way he does, 15, 17, 18 points a game, sometimes in the 20s. You know, he's our best shooter, but... I'm just, bro, I'm tired of this shit every night. It's like Luca forcing up garbage, having some turnovers and not getting back on defense. And then we have a blown coverage because we fail to, to, to rotate on the defensive side or we double and we don't get back. We don't chase the boards. Dude, I, if I sat there on court side and I was a coaching staff member, just a neutral person, like a health inspector type shit, bro, I'd have a book of just fucking things we need to fix because I just don't understand the personnel group that we have on this roster and how bad we are. I don't give a shit how good of a player you are, Luca. I love you. I support you. You're probably one of my favorite players in the NBA. But the things that you do on a consistent night-in and night-out basis, if it ain't a step-back three, you're out here just pulling from dumbass shots. You're holding the ball for 10-plus seconds. You're not getting back on defense when you turn it over. You're bitching at the referee. Dude, a step back three with, 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 with three seconds on the shot clock is not an efficient shot in the NBA. You have the ability to get to the basket whenever you want. If you weren't so scared to shoot free throws, I would say that's like that, that, that's why I probably would say that's why he's taking those step back shots because he's not confident in his free throw capabilities. You'd rather take a complicated 30-foot shot than go into the basket and take free throws. That, that's where I think he is, genuinely. And he's shooting horrible from behind the arc this year, under 30%. You, you, you want me to, like, get, like, a, a small, like, clip of this and, like, tag him in it so, like, he can personally see you just go off on him, even though that you're, you know, a huge fan of the guy? Dude, I, I, I can do that. I, I can do that. Listen, if Ben didn't see the damn clip that just went insanely viral, Luca's not going to give two shits what a random guy in Fort Myers, Florida is going to say because – I, I got a lot of opinions to give. It's just a matter of who's willing to listen. I mean, I, I'm serious, bro. I'm, I, I'm watching these games. I'm frustrated from tip to the final possession. I mean, I'll look at it like this. I'm looking at your guys' losses right now, and like, I, and all of them are against really good teams. 
You lost to the Hawks in the first game of the year by 36 points. Denver, you lost that one by 31 points. Um, Miami by 10 that, points. 15. Get it right. <laughs> and then Chicago, you lost by 10. So, I mean, you guys play the Spurs, which would be Friday. So, the day that this comes out. Uh, you can play the Nuggets on Monday. Then you play the Suns twice. And then the Clippers twice after that. And then you play the Wizards after that. And Who all, are actually playing good basketball right now. I'm just saying that you guys might go on a little bit of a lull here. You might go on a little bit of a losing streak here. So you might yeah, have to ride I, that. I, you, I, might have to, you might have to ride the L train for a couple days, my guy. Listen, Maybe I put, a week I, or two. I, I'll be playing Call of Duty. I put the phone right, on, right next to the TV stand. I'm playing my games and I'm checking in. I'm just, you know, whenever I look over, stupidity, turnover. What the fuck shot was that? Why did you, what are you doing? Like, I'm literally yelling in my COD headset. Not at the game of Call of Duty. I'm yelling at fucking the Mavericks because of just how dumb it is. Everyone's saying it's all Jason Kidd. Bro, we could have Phil Jackson as a head coach. Luca and the rest of this team has in the mindset, we're going to put up 43s a game. We're going to hit 50% of those threes. And we are just going to go out there and we're going to play no defense. Oh, and Luke is going to take whatever shot he wants whenever he feels like it. I love the aggression that KP has had in terms of attacking the basket. He's putting his back to the basket a lot more. Is it as aggressive as I'd like? No, but again, he's doing a lot more than what he did while Carlisle was our head coach. And that's no disrespect to the, to the coach that got us an NBA championship. But he was limited in how Rick called the offense. So KP's playing better. Dorian Finney-Smith has found his shot. He's getting in a good stride. Reggie Bullock will get going. Obviously, Luka Doncic is going to have an MVP run towards somewhere in this damn league. He started off slow last year, so I know that it's coming. But these slow starts in back-to-back years just don't bode well. And I know that he hit a game-winning shot against Boston the other night. But again, the odds of that going in aren't necessarily very high. He's due up for one step back to go in. He was open, but again, I'm, I'm just – I'm over it. I really, really am genuinely over it. And with that said, you guys, that'll wrap up another segment of Kevin's therapy session. You know, hey, I met, last, I last episode, I walked off the damn episode. This one, oh. I just had to end it on a rant. Oh, it's just because, you know, I mean, those gray hairs were already gray to begin with. But I mean, with the way things are going, you know, they're eventually going to turn into white hairs. God forbid the Colts lose to the Jaguars this weekend. And if the, the Mavericks end up losing like four or five straight games, those gray hairs will definitely be turning white. So... You guys just, won't um, see me for a couple of days. Yeah, you're going to be, yeah, he's going to be slumbering. He's going to be depressed because his team suck. Yeah. Um, I can't even say that, um, that the Mavericks suck. I mean, they're above 500. They're better than the Lakers right now. I mean, the Lakers, I mean, we got by the heat. You know, bronze out. Still got the job done. I'll take it. Malik Monk dropped 27. Did you really? Yeah, dude. Go check the box score. He dropped 27. I'm in a bucket. Yo, a walking bucket. Give that man some chances. 27. He's making the most of it. (laughs) I don't care if you got in an overtime period. And, and, hey, I got to say, though, Mel's been looking good. Shooting over 50% from the three-point line this year. I I, I, I don't want to talk about Russell. He had a decent decent game against the Heat. He said it when the trade heat happened. Bro, bro, bricks. Literal bricks. Did you hear what Derek Fisher said like last week when he was said Russell Westbrick? <laughs> he, dude, that was so petty. 
That's just that the NBA. Hilarious. Bro, that's just the NBA. It's so petty. And it's like, you're going to have like one or two reactions to it. You're going to be like, oh, yeah, like, like I can't stand like all this pettiness. It's just annoying. Or it's like, you know what? I love it. I, I think JJ Reddick went on first take the other day. And I remember he did a segment or two with uh, Stephen A. And he was saying, like, bro, it's just, that's just the NBA. Like, it's pettiness. And he said, like, I'm here for it. Like, he sounded like a fan, like, in that way. I was like, yes, I, I, know, what that, I know what that feels like. Yeah. Derek Fisher is a five time NBA champion. Russell hasn't gotten one. So if, 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 if a the, few, the, I don't the, know if with Fisher the biggest, makes the Hall of Fame, he with might. The big, but... With the biggest rainbow shot in NBA history. Yeah, with that point oh four, yeah, or the point four shot. No, clock. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying the rainbow shot, like just in general, like the shot. Oh, I love his lefty rainbows. shot. I I love Derek Fisher's jump shot. Bro, when he said that, I was literally falling out of my chair. It was so <laughs> funny. But it's like, <laughs> I mean, Russell hasn't won one yet. He has no rings yet. Ooh. And Bronze, saying just like just like the number on your back. And Braun's just sitting uh, on the side. And, and Braun's just sitting on the sideline looking human. He's hurt, bro. Can't oh, well. Be out there. Oh, oh, well. But, you know, we're not in last place, so I can't be mad. So, you know, we're hanging in there. I think we ended up doing a two-hour episode anyway. Yeah, we're about eight minutes away from two hours. Yeah, we, we got we got to cut this down, guys. We're, we're, we're sorry. We know that... <laughs> We know Bro, that this is an ideal. See, so, okay, we got to be transparent here for a second. So, Kevin said, "Yeah, we'll keep this to an hour. You know, maybe like an hour fifteen tops. Try to wrap this up by about like ten o'clock." He legitimately said, "I want to be in bed, sleeping by like ten, ten fifteen. And I was just thinking in my head, "It's like, yeah, there's no way that's happening. No way." <laughs> I'm like, "That's just wistful thinking. It's like we definitely go carry this out." To at least ten thirty, if not ten forty five. Hey, we we in the middle right now. It's ten thirty five, bro. But sometimes we used to start recording at this time. Yeah, no, we can't. We can't do that. That shit is, especially when we have an episode like this, where we're going back and forth. It would be the the, the episodes where we finish at twelve thirty one o'clock are just atrocious. Where it's just like, uh, bro, I'll be down. We we both be down bad yeah. the next morning. Oh yeah. And you're down I mean, way I, worse than me. I, well, it's like you—you you gotta upload the audio. You know, I gotta upload all the stuff on YouTube. It, you know, I mean, I'm able to make it work. And the thing is, like, sometimes I gotta rush because I—I I gotta do it all before I get to work. So, like, I'm, I'm kind of limited on time, just on days that I have to work when we're just uploading content. But, you know, I like a challenge. I thrive under the yeah. pressure. Yeah, yeah, totally. Thrive so under like, the pressure. It, it, it's like a journalist, like trying to hit deadlines. Just that's what I'm trying to do. Listen, if we can get you editing before midnight, that'd be great. So you have less work to do in the morning. Oh, exactly. Sometimes, like, as long as I throw up the big episode up on YouTube before midnight, I'm happy about that. Because usually, like, I'll wake up like at seven o'clock in the morning and then just start editing from there. But outside of that, I'm able to make it work. Yeah. So. But um, guys, as we close this out, once again, as always, thank you so much for the support. Um, the subscriber thing. <laughs> has been wild the last three weeks we are at 319 subs the last time we did a sub check which was the episode before aj we were like at what 298 if not just at 300 yeah so the fact that we've got 19 subs in the last week is just phenomenal to anybody that has recently joined anybody that has just legitimately come into this 
you know, realm of our podcast. Welcome to the family. We are so excited that you're here. We are having such a great time with providing content and just having a ball. Like Kyle said, you know, Hell yeah. I aim, I aim early to end, but because we're just getting into it and having so much fun with one another. I mean, obviously the last 30 minutes were had nothing to do with the agenda. We just came up nope. with that on the fly. Nope. And just, that's a part of the podcast. Yeah. The, 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 the Markeith Morris one, that was, bro. I don't know if you could hear me. I was chuckling in the back. I kind of had to pull away from the mic so nobody would hear me, but bro, I was, I was chuckling. I thought that's it was what it is. But uh, yeah, I mean, no, Kevin's exactly right. Just, you know, you guys have been supporting the channel and supporting the podcast and, you know, from the bottom of our hearts, we just appreciate you guys, you know, checking us out and giving us a chance. So, I mean, you know, it's just two dudes just talking about sports, just being passionate about it. Like there, there's no other way to really say, it, you know, we just, we just do things. We just do sports, bro. Like that's just what we do. And, um, couldn't do it with a better partner than Kevin. So definitely appreciate you, big Brody. Well, I do what I can for the community, man. Yes, sir. But uh, with that said, you guys, uh, that'll wrap it up from here. You know, once again, just thank you guys uh, for tuning in, supporting the podcast the way that you have. Uh, you know, we'll come out with a new episode uh, Monday morning, so definitely stay tuned for that. You know, pretty simple NFL Week Ten recap. I imagine there'll be some more NBA pettiness that Kevin and I will love to dive <laughs> into. So I'm definitely open to that. And. uh Outside of that, it's pretty much it. So with that said, you guys, you know, thank you guys for tuning in once again. And we'll see you guys later. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Pack podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. If you're a working professional wondering what's next for your career, you've come to the right place. Whether you're looking for a promotion, growth, or a potential career transition, look no further. With over 30 years working in a variety of industries, I share my insider knowledge with those ready to get ahead on Career Advancement with Craig Ansell. Tune in to get your strategies for success.